what I tell people is just pick a, find a really good problem. And uh, we have a, a, a saying that you can do real research on real problems. And the, but the problem is the real important problems start with the question, what do people care about? What do they want to get solved? Jim is a professor at the Rawls College of Business at Texas Tech University. It's the place where he got his MBA back in 1973 and his PhD in 1976. Over the years, Jim has been a highly popular conference speaker on how information technology has been changing the world of business. He's also become an expert in setting up business-funded university research centers. And he's become a visionary on how to reinvent the staid academic journal, something we believe every B2B company with a thought leadership publication should pay attention to. It would be a journal for uh, academics, uh, for professors, for students, and for practitioners. And we've been able to achieve that. And we just had different type of content Jim has been a big force in making what is now a nine-year-old publication, Entrepreneurship and Innovation Exchange, a flagship publication at the University of St. Thomas's Schultz School of Entrepreneurship. EIX is on track to register 5 million viewers in its latest fiscal year, a readership that has made it the envy of many academic business publications. Jim is also an extremely talented leader of people and a highly successful entrepreneur. I first met Jim nearly 40 years ago when I was senior editor of Information Week magazine, and he was a professor of management information systems at the University of Minnesota's business school. The next year, 1988, after I joined the management consulting firm CSC Index in Cambridge, Massachusetts, Jim took a leave from University of Minnesota to become a research director at CSC Index. We have been close friends to this day. Now, Jim has set up research centers at the University of Memphis, University of Minnesota and Texas Tech on how information technology has been changing the way companies operate for many years. He has raised more than $15 million from the business world in funding these university research centers. Jim has also written dozens of articles, including four for Harvard Business Review in the last 10 years. And he's written numerous books, including the 1997 book, The World on Time, which was about Federal Express. Jim has also been a board director at Best Buy for 15 years and an IT services company called Cyber. In our interview, Jim and I explored four things. The first was how he has managed his thought leadership career, both in academia and outside of academia in the business world. The second thing we discussed was his beliefs about business research in academia and why such research has to be especially useful for companies and not just for fellow academics. Third, we talked about Jim's vision and his role in bringing EIX into the world of well-read academic journals on entrepreneurship. And lastly, we explored his stand against tenure, controversial stand in the world of academia, of course, and why he thinks tenure does more harm than good for students and faculty. It's great to have you on, on, this, uh, on this video podcast of ours. Pleasure. Let's talk. Uh, let Let's um, talk about earlier in your career, and you know when you recognized the need to to be a thought leader and be seen as a thought leader, not just within the academic world, but outside of that academic world in the the larger business world. Well, of course, as a professor, you do have the publisher parish <laughs> dynamic. That's how you. Uh, the basic mission is to advance and disseminate knowledge and advancing it's through research and disseminating it's through uh, 
publishing and uh, teaching. So uh, early on, uh, the uh, academic journals were, of course, very important. And you have to establish that on a peer-reviewed basis, the top scholars in your field consider your work worthy. Uh, the problem with that is it's a very small group when you think about it. And if you're not careful, you just end up having scholars talking to scholars. And if you wanted to have an impact on the business world, you had to have other distribution channels. So one of uh, the strategies that I used was if I had an article in a good academic journal, I would try to spin off two or three uh, translations of that into practical guidelines for practitioners and start publishing in practitioner journals to, uh, to achieve that goal. So was that a common practice when you began doing that? Were, were your fellow business professors at the universities uh, you know, where you were teaching, were they doing, most of them doing something similar or, or not? Not most of them. The people that I started looking up to were doing that. Of course, two, uh, two people from Harvard that made a real impression on me were Dick Nolan and Warren McFarland. And uh, they published in the Harvard Business Review, which is a good practitioner outlet. But uh, that was where it became very apparent. I saw them giving speeches and I realized their content was based upon their interaction with businesses. And uh, I used to be a rock musician. And if, <laughs> if you want to, if you want to get bookings, you got to have a record on the, on the radio. And if you're a scholar and you want to get invited to uh, in, engage with business people and speak at conferences, you better uh, get your work exposed in the outlets that will create that awareness. So an article is like a single, <laughs> if you will. And so a book is like an album. Uh, that was part of what I was learning. To give you some really glaring, embarrassing statistics, 50% of academic articles uh, never get cited and, uh, and they just don't get read particularly by the business people with any volume. You know, I've got some articles in academic journals that are very well regarded. And, you know, they may have been uh, read 500 times uh, over the life of the article, as opposed to having something read half a million times, uh, which you can achieve uh, to or a million times in, a, in the right business outlet. You know, one of the things that impressed me when I first saw you on the stage that back in our days at CSC Index, early, early 90s, late 80s, early 90s, was that you were a very effective presenter, both from a content standpoint, but also just from a, a speaker skill standpoint, which was not the case with most of the business professors who I had seen giving, giving uh, presentation speeches at that time. So it seems to me you recognized that. Um, it's not just the content, it's the way that content is presented on stage. Would that be fair to say? Yeah, you have to be interesting. And quite frankly, it helps to be humorous. Research shows that if people have a good laugh every five minutes or so, you double their attention span, which is why people can watch, uh, you know, the, uh, a late night show like Jimmy Fallon uh, for an hour. And, and if you try to watch Meet the Press at 30 minutes, you're really struggling because it can get a little bit dry. So it has to be it has to be useful. It has to be entertaining, uh, and so that's part of the goal of developing good content. So, as when you first began doing public presentations, uh, were you as good a speaker? Did you did you use a lot of humor in those speeches, or was that something you had? To, was that a natural skill, or was that something you developed over time? 
I always like telling jokes, so it's kind of natural, but you don't really want to tell joke jokes. You want anecdotal humor because uh, you want it to just kind of blend into the uh, into the presentation. And also, I've been a rock musician, so I was used to being on stage and knew that you had to maintain eye contact and look at the audience uh, in order to uh, keep them engaged. Yeah, so you didn't have, obviously, the stage fright that I, I sense a lot of young professors may have in front of a big a big audience, not just a classroom of 30 people. <laughs> it's funny you mentioned that, Bob. I remember a, a graduate student once asked me, uh, it must be great to be like you. And uh, I said, what do you mean? And uh, she said, you just have no fear of failure. I said, failing is my biggest fear. I said, how in the world can you stand up in front of hundreds and thousands of people uh, with that, uh, that fear? And I said, well, that's what makes me work hard because I just don't want to fail. I want it to be an enlightening, engaging experience for them. One of the things that happens is you get you start to learn what works and you get comfortable with that. So it gets you in your comfort zone. In fact, it might be useful just to kind of lay out my, my business model in terms of how I put together content. Uh, it's a very straightforward model that I, I share, particularly with junior faculty. But uh, if you can just imagine a, a dial here, we'll start at 12 o'clock. And uh, it, it starts with uh, all research uh, starts with a question that needs to be answered or a problem that needs to be solved. So, for example, when I was on the board of Best Buy, uh, one of the issues was uh, the internet was coming out. And so how, how are customers going to decide whether they're going to click or brick, you know, go to the internet or go to the store? And that, that's a good research question. And if um, you're trained to do research, the next thing you do and just kind of moving to two o'clock is research. And then from research comes articles moving down to about five o'clock. And then uh, if you're writing articles, you have the ingredients to create books moving over to seven o'clock. And so I've got my singles and my albums that we talked about earlier. And that creates kind of a billboard, a visibility, if you will, that people can find out about you. And through that, they invite you in uh, to do consulting, maybe seminars or to do uh, keynote addresses. And the, the funny thing about those, those three you learn quickly, and it was very counterintuitive because I worked my way up through life, getting paid by the hour. But uh, the more people that are in the room and the less time you spend in it, the more you get paid. <laughs> so, and, 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 and keynote addresses, quite frankly, pay obscenely compared to just, say, a day of consulting or a week of consulting or a week-long seminar. But anyway, if you're engaging through consulting and seminars and speeches, uh, you've got lots of people coming at you with more questions, say the 10 o'clock point of uh, doing the engagement to, well, what are the new questions and uh, problems that I should be working on and problems that they're having. And that takes me back up to 12 o'clock again. And I've, that, I consider that my virtuous intellectual circle that's kept me uh, um, productive for decades. Are there any low uh, quick roads, uh, you know, shortcuts or? Well, the, the, uh, if you're an academic, you're going to do a, a dissertation. That's the kind of the crumbling of activity to uh, to getting a PhD. And what I tell people is just pick a, find a really good problem uh, or, or question that you're going to focus on, because that's going to launch your career. And uh, you'll, that's something you'll publish, and that'll help you get your first job. So make sure that it's uh, something that uh, people care about. If, if I'm talking to a non-academic, I just say the same thing. You just want to uh, 
find a problem that needs to be solved uh, or a question needs to be answered. The difference is that, you know, an academic has a whole methodology and set of tools for doing more elegant research, which is why it's very good to have uh, business people pair up with academics. And uh, we have a, a, a saying that you can do real research on real problems. And the, but the problem is the real important problems start with the question, what do people care about? What do they want to get solved? You know, and, and I, I was more technical in the early days. And it was about how do you find out what information executives want so you can get them a system that really helps their decision making? Uh, at the other extreme, you can do uh, toy research on toy problems. And so that it's, not, it's nothing people care about. And uh, methodologically, it's not very good research. But a lot of academics, what they end up doing is real research on toy problems. <laughs> In other words, they're using very elegant methodology, experimental designs, and all kinds of stuff, but they're not focusing on something that anybody really cares about. So where you want to get to is real research on real problems. And of course, where a lot of consultants can go wrong is since if they don't have the... Uh, the methodology of good research down, then what they end up doing is toy research on real problems. So uh, a lot of things that you read in, in, in articles and newspapers and magazines and stuff, they don't understand causality. They'll say something because two things correlate, one caused the other. And so, and, and that's just not good science. Let's talk about, let's switch gears here and talk about Entrepreneur and Innovation Exchange, EIX for short. This was a venture that uh, you and Dick Schultz, the you know the founder of Best Buy, and we're talking about. I think it's now ten. It's been ten years since those first discussions began. We started talking in 2012, and we launched it in 2014. The opportunity you saw that could help uh, Dick, given that he had you know donated to the University of St. Thomas to get the Schultz School of Entrepreneurship going. Well, quick funny little side story on that. I was at the University of Minnesota, and I was serving on the board of Best Buy. And our fundraising people took me out to lunch and said, would like to approach Dick Schultz, the founder of Best Buy, which I'll be very candid with you. But Dick Schultz is one of the people I admire most on the planet. Uh, he's a real, he's the real thing, a real entrepreneur and uh, has the courage and the innovativeness to, to make things happen. But they said, we'd like to approach him for a gift. And uh, since you're on the board, perhaps you could give us some insight into how best to do that. Now, Jim had known Best Buy for a while. Dick Schultz founded the company in the Twin Cities as The Sound of Music in 1966, before renaming it Best Buy 17 years later. Today, Best Buy's revenue is $51 billion and is the largest consumer electronics chain in the U.S. Dick was CEO of Best Buy from 1983 to 2002, and then was chairman of Best Buy for another 10 years. Jim became a board director at Best Buy in 1993 and served on the board for 14 years. And I said, well, how big of a gift are you looking for? And they said, oh, a million dollars. And I said, well, that shouldn't be too difficult. And I said, you know, I, I wouldn't even ask him for a gift. I said, there's two things I know about Dick. Uh, one is he never got a chance to go to college and he, he regrets that. And the other is that, you know, uh, since he's right here in town, people don't realize what he's building because it's a big deal nationally. And, and uh, he feels, you know, what's going on in the backyard of the University of Minnesota is not being fully appreciated. And so I said, you know what I'd do? I would just 
tell him that you're so impressed with what he's achieved and give him an honorary uh, degree. And, uh, you know, that, that doesn't cost the university anything, and he's the type of person that would, would be uh, worthy of it. And they, they didn't do that. Uh, a couple of years later, uh, the University of St. Thomas, a local Jesuit school, gave Dick an honorary doctorate. And uh, he gave him a gift to start the Schultz School of Entrepreneurship. Dick made a $50 million donation to the University of St. Thomas in the year 2000 to open its Schultz School of Entrepreneurship. That money went to things like a new building, a $22 million four-story facility called Schultz Hall, which opened that year. Both undergraduate and graduate students take courses at the school, which today has eight full-time faculty members. Sure, academics can be their own worst enemies. Now, University of Minnesota has given Dick an honorary degree, and he's given about $50 million to the medical school, but, uh, you know, his wife died of... Uh, cancer, and so he's very supportive of medical research. But he's given, uh, you know, well over $100 million to the University of St. Thomas to help with uh, business education and entrepreneurship education, and uh, also uh, help uh, help fund their law school over there. So, I mean, he, he is a philanthropist. And by the way, entrepreneurs are typically twice as philanthropic as non-entrepreneur CEOs. So uh, getting back to the story, Dick came up and he said, you know, I want to find ways to impact uh, the, the entrepreneurship in this country because his view was that entrepreneurs basically are the ones that create the jobs. And if he can help more entrepreneurs succeed, he's helping uh, the economy. And he uh, also was interested in increasing the profile of the Schultz School. And so uh, in my little circle model, that's a problem, you know, and it's a question, how do we do this? And I was at the University of Minnesota, which was ranked as the top MIS program in the country. And a key part of that had been the MIS Quarterly, uh, which was the, uh, the, the is still the leading journal in the field of information systems. And But there were problems with that journal. And that is that uh, as a journal gets more popular, uh, the publication queue becomes a problem. So you could get an article accepted through the normal vetting process, blind refereeing and all that, but we couldn't publish it for four years. <laughs> after it had been accepted. You can't have timely, useful information if you're doing that. So the only solution was to create an online journal, but still have the vetting and so forth. And so I said, hey, let's, let's create a new paradigm for what a journal should look like. And people kind of have their, their snobby about printed journals, uh, but we could create one and then we could have it vetted with a, a really strong editorial board with scholars from all over and top practitioners as well. And so that was uh, the idea that was presented to Dick. And what was his first reaction when, he, when, he, when you explained that to him? You know, Dick's an interesting man. It was very positive. Uh, Dick learns from years of being an entrepreneur that uh, you bet on the person. Uh, if the idea sounds reasonable, uh, good people make good things happen. And it may not be what you initially think it's going to be, but uh, through a little adjustment and trial and error, the the good people make it happen. So uh, I'd had, uh, you know, during the years I was on the board of Best Buy, I would convince them to put up bestbuy.com. And and uh, when we tried to double our uh, number of stores in two years, <laughs> what was happening was Circuit City was uh, raising their prices at all the cities that we didn't have markets and then lowering them in the cities that we were in to try to drive us out of business. So our only solution was we had to open 80 stores in two years. And so uh, the, um, they were deciding 
and let's go for that. And they were going to sell a whole bunch of bonds. And so, you know, we all saw what happened to Southwest Airlines over, over the holidays. Their infrastructure didn't keep up. And so as the IT guy on the board, I said, Dick, I said, our IT infrastructure can't handle 80 more stores. We'll have to invest for that. And uh, Dick nodded his head and he said, good point. Throw in another 200 million in bonds for IT. <laughs> it was the uh, easiest money I'd raised in that, in that amount. But uh, I also convinced them to get to bestbuy.com. And more importantly, I convinced them not to shut bestbuy.com down when it wasn't making a profit. And not to spin it off as a separate company. No, no, no. So uh, it wouldn't have survived the pandemic without bestbuy.com. So Jick uh, just kind of believed in me. And of course, to me, it was a huge responsibility. When Dick Schultz believed in you, you do not want to disappoint him. And so, but that's how it got launched. Entrepreneurship is, is, is an emerging discipline. And so I understood what it was like. And so I, I wanted to work with them and kind of share what I had learned uh, helping an emerging discipline. And so uh, we had a really good uh, scholar at, uh, at St. Thomas, uh, David Deeds. And so the two of us got together and we said, what we need to do is approach a group of uh, the top faculty in the country and tell them about this idea. And we, we launched a conference in uh, uh, Minneapolis at the St. Thomas Michelle School and uh, invited them in and shared our vision with them. And, and that's how we uh, got people on board. And of course, still today, Dozens, right? Dozens of entrepreneurship academic journals. So why did you, how did you decide, you know, we can't just be one more and make a dent um, in the way that Dick Schultz wants to make a dent in the, in the business world and academically? We definitely started with our target would be for, it would be a journal for academics, uh, for professors, for students, and for practitioners. And we've been able to achieve that. And we just had different type of content and promoted in different ways. We also have done something very significant is that we uh, work with the uh, academic journals and say we would like somebody, you know, we pick kind of cherry pick their best stuff and say we can uh, repurpose that and make it readable. So what I used to do as an individual professor with my work was that we would do that. And one of the keys to that was uh, having uh, Kathy Bidet, who you're very familiar with. Uh, get a journalist to uh, work on that, the readability. You know, academics tend to write to impress. And if you want to get to business people, you have to write to express. And so uh, we uh, have all of our articles certainly vetted for their uh, methodology with really good scholars. But then we we have a journalist go over and, and make them more readable. And uh, that's been one of our uh, keys to success. You know, we, uh, when EIX started, we were lucky to get 20,000 views a year, but uh, we're, we're, uh, we'll be exceeding 5 million uh, views this year. So uh, the audience for it is, is there, the demands that is there. So it's been uh, fulfilled our wildest expectations and dreams of what we could do. But Bob, there was a lot of pushback. People would say, people told me point blank, you can't, that will not succeed. Uh, prestigious <laughs> journals or print journals. What's that? Professor, who told you that? Professors? Professors uh, did. Professors did. Uh, the um, president of the University of St. Thomas didn't think it was a very good idea. And, uh, you know, one of the areas I work in in communication in which the thing you try to do is ask the question that makes them kind of get some insight. And the question was, when people would raise that, I'd say, you know, that's what 
the, the book retailers, the old brick and mortar book retailers said about amazon.com. <laughs> and so, you know, the, uh, any, any new idea will be uh, scoffed at and be a, a joke and people then will go into denial. But if it's a good idea, ultimately it will become obvious that, oh, this is a, a much better way to do things. The, uh, the dean at uh, Texas Tech at the time didn't want me to work on this. And uh, I had a Best Buy gave us a grant to start it, uh, just a $100,000 grant. And he gave it back uh, to try to kill, it, kill my project. So I just, I just went ahead without the funding and we got it done anyway. You know, if you're going to make a difference in this world, someone told me a long time ago that uh, you're going to have to be uh, uh, willing to be on the verge of getting promoted or fired if you're going to do something that's uh, truly uh, innovative. If the risky job. Basically. Yes. So I've also noticed that St. Thomas, you know, the School of Entrepreneurship, the Schultz School of Entrepreneurship is now in the kind of the top tiers of entrepreneurship programs in this country. That was <laughs> not the case uh, 12 years ago when, when Dick Schultz were talking about EIX. No, the uh, EIX uh, has accomplished what Dick asked. Dick asked, I want to help entrepreneurs. And uh, I also want to increase the profile of the Schultz School. And so both both have been achieved. So yeah. uh, and, uh, and that means so much because, uh, like I said, you don't want to disappoint Dick, not because he's uh, a difficult person. It's just that he, when someone believes in you, you just don't want to disappoint them. When you look back at, at these 12 years working with the IX folks while teaching at Texas Tech, you know, and, and everything else you do. Uh, but looking at EIX, what are you most fond of? What what you know? What have you gotten the the kind of the the, the, the strongest feelings about in watching this thing just blossom in in twelve years? What what really what really you know makes you say that you know this has really been a great way to spend you know twelve of my years? Well, you know, th there's a great saying, and that is that the marketplace doesn't lie to you. It's a pretty honest place, and so. Uh, the market has told us that uh, the idea was a good idea, and they've uh, received it, embraced it. A lot of uh, entrepreneur scholars are getting visibility they would have never otherwise achieved, which has helped them in terms of their engagement and, and through that process, learning about uh, questions and problems that should be addressed in their research. Uh, students, uh, we, they uh, respond off the uh, what's called Entrepreneur Festival, eFest. And so we bring we have a competition nationally, and students compete all over the country, and they come into the Schultz School and present their ideas, and they're awarded huge grants uh, to help get their ideas uh, converted into businesses. Quite frankly, we we did a good job picking the staff. I mean, the the team that we have, and it's a virtual team, and uh, we all uh, come together once a week for a one hour meeting and and plan things out. And it's just been an absolute delight uh, working with those people and their, their energy is positive and they're people that want to make a difference and they're excited to see the difference happen. And Yeah, well, yeah Jim, I have to tell you, you you've been, the, you know, seeing through Kathy's eyes, you've been the straw that stirs that drink at EIX, you know, for 12 years. You've got a lot of good people working with you, you know. But but you've been the straw that has stirred the drink. That publication wouldn't be here wouldn't be, had gotten as far as it has without you really pushing ahead with things, um, you know. But I couldn't have gotten it done without the, the team too. 
uh, and they made it much better than I could have ever made it. Certainly, uh, so they on my own. So th there's a synergy that happens when you get good people. You know, staffing people on your. We talk about management being planning, staffing, directing, and controlling. You make good staffing decisions, and uh, you really reap benefits from that. You know, you, you just can't work with uh, dysfunctional teams, and that's one thing about academia that that is always challenging. Is uh, you know, people say, "What's it like to be a professor?" I just said. Well, you remember all those kids in school that were really, really smart, but couldn't get along with a lot of people? <laughs> Academia is a great, great refuge if you're smart and you don't want to have to get along. <laughs> we, we, we cherry picked the people that we thought were uh, would be good colleagues and good to work with. Jim, let's uh, switch gears quickly to uh, this topic of business B2B companies, whether they're software companies or management consulting firms or IT services firms, you know, you You've worked, uh, you know, a bunch of people in that sector and other business-to-business -business sectors, and they, they say, we want to be thought leaders in this area, and many of them, I think, um, have no no knowledge of what you and I saw at CSE Index 30 years ago of this, this great partnership that it, that consulting firm had with a bunch of professors, including sure. yourself, and bringing them together in, in research, in real research with done at and with companies. Now you've done that at, um, you know, at, at Memphis, uh, the FedEx uh, Center for Cycle Time Research. You've been doing that at Texas Tech, bringing companies in, right, to fund and get involved in, in business sure. research. It, um, do enough uh, businesses come to universities, you know, to say, we, we want to create some thought leadership, some research together. And we see you as a, a very, you know, a, a potentially powerful partner to do sure. that. You see enough of that or not? Uh, there's not enough of it. It's, it's, uh, it's a two-way street. The faculty aren't doing enough to reach out to the business community and, the, and uh, vice versa. But here, here, it, the economics are overwhelmingly in favor of it because, uh, first of all, business people aren't trained uh, to do as methodologically rigorous research as academics are. On the other hand, academics can be very content doing uh, irrelevant research. And I, I will tell you that most faculty go throughout their career, business faculty, without having any of their research funded by a business. They, they just do their research. They'll maybe pester someone to let them collect some data from them. And uh, so this research is going to happen one way or another. It's got, it's got to happen because that's the only way they can publish to avoid perishing. I would go out to companies and try to explore and find out what problems they were having and suggest research. And over time, I get where I, I could get my research funded. Again, most faculty go through their entire careers without having any of their research funded. I, and I just be, understand the absurdity of that. I'm talking public universities supported by taxpayers. So when a business professor is doing research, the taxpayers are paying for the research when it really should be paid for by uh, businesses. So just taking the uh, uh, example of uh, Best Buy and the question of how do people decide whether to go uh, click or brick, uh, Best that was a good question. Best Buy put together a half a million dollar grant and we started doing research on it. I'll never forget, you know, the beauty of doing research is it's just so fun to find something out because uh, you're actually creating knowledge and uh, one of the first findings that was so useful was we, were, we would study people uh, using uh, the internet and shopping and building shopping carts. And, and then uh, we were trying to find out why would they decide 
not to finish the sale. You know, they'd get the cart full, but then not buy. And uh, as simple as it was, the number one reason is they'd see the shipping costs and they'd say, ah, screw it, I'll just go to the store. And so uh, the, our first fight, I remember we got a lot of buzz from this back in 2001. It was in Business Week that, uh, you know, if you want to get people to buy uh, from your website, give them free shipping. Now, of course, you build the cost into the product and it's not much, but somehow when it stands out there by itself, it just seems like, ah, eh, I don't want to have to pay that. And so just uh, the smart companies, most of them today all include free shipping because that, that is a turnoff to, to a buyer. But that's useful information. So, and that, that was one of our first, we, we got a whole lot of findings like, what do they do? They're getting educated. They're spending a whole lot more time getting educated than they are just doing price comparison, which is what a lot of people thought. So getting those insights. So companies uh, should find universities receptive, faculty receptive to uh, engagement and faculty should be doing a much better job. All right, let's switch gears again. Um, you have had a very, very interesting take on tenure and the value of it in academia. <laughs> <laughs> and um, it's no secret uh, because you've been published on this and um, that, that you think tenure isn't, isn't good for uh, universities, it's not good for students, it's not, it's not good for society. So tell us about your stance on, on, on tenure. Well, first of all, freedom is critical, okay? Mm -hmm. And the, the original reason for tenure was academic freedom. It goes back to religious schools, uh, in the very early days, uh, a couple hundred years ago, and uh, you wanted if someone wanted to teach, uh, say, evolution at a private religious school, and a donor uh, d disagreed with that being taught, then that someone could lose their job. So that was the origin of tenure, and that is very legitimate. Unfortunately, it morphed over years into a guaranteed job for life, and guaranteed job for life. I'm not a fan of. You know, if you're running a business, you you expect to have somewhere in the neighborhood of 5 8% turnover and uh, as, as a matter of getting rid of the, the dead wood. And we don't do that in academia. The uh, Chronicle of Higher Ed did a study. It was a while back, but I th most people say it's still representative. Uh, they, they measured uh, 200 and roughly 50,000 tenured professors in the country, and uh, they only fire less than 50 a year. Imagine running a business. Where, where, where you you put up with that. Now, they, they've gotten rid of tenure in the United Kingdom. Margaret Thatcher got rid of it in 1988. And people say, oh, you'll destroy and they, I higher education, you know, and, and the reality is uh, Oxford and Cambridge are doing just fine uh, without tenure. They're still among the top 10 universities in the world. So uh, the cost of higher education, uh, Bob, it's going up exponentially uh, and it's going up at a much higher rate than uh, inflation and, and other areas. And so we got part of the student loan debt and all of this stuff going on is just uh, and the cost of, of getting an education is going up because we don't get rid of the non-performers. And so what, what you tend to do with the non-performers is you try to, you know, well, we can't farm, so have them teach fewer classes, not teach classes, do things like that. And uh, now I want to be real clear. The majority of faculty do a great job and they're very dedicated. But uh, why be carrying the dead weight of the people that um, are, are, are abusing tenure? I mean, what other job in our economy has the privilege of its guaranteed? I totally agree. I totally agree. We all need that pressure, right? Everybody needs that pressure to, to, uh, to perform. You know, the job is not there forever, uh, no matter how you 
perform, how well or how poorly you perform? So I, I got myself in uh, in hot water by being an outspoken critic of tenure. And you have to ke- see the humor in this. Uh, I was retaliated against for speaking out against tenure, which is supposed to protect academic freedom. And my argument, and it's been proven, uh, I've been involved in some litigation with this, uh, that, uh, that the First Amendment does, in fact, protect academic freedom. So that's, I'd rather have that than a con- tenure is just a contract. That's all it is. But it's become uh, such a large sledgehammer that administrators are just reluctant to try to fire anybody uh, once they get it. Okay, Jim, last, uh, last leg here of this, of this discussion. So when you look back at your academic and business career, you know, including your board director, what are you most proud of? What, what accomplishments do you take uh, particular pride in? You have some interesting uh, metrics that kind of give you some feedback. One is you do a lot of research. How much is that research cited? And that, that's one sense of value. Uh, another is you've got people who've read your work and let you know that it really helped them in their career, helped, helped their business. And you know, I talked about the magic of students when you can see them going from not getting it to get it. That's a very instant one. But uh, you know, I've got students that have created their own businesses and are doing so well. And uh, they're, they're so kind to be uh, grateful uh, for, for the effort that you put into uh, giving them the best education you, you could give them. And so that, I mean, that's, that's the real reward. I could have afforded to retire years ago, but, um, you know, I'd rather be in a room with people and, and helping them uh, develop skills uh, for their careers uh, than playing golf on, a, on any given afternoon. And so that's kind of the reward. It's a, it's a great occupation from that standpoint. I mean, you know, in the business of creating and sharing knowledge, it's a wonderful career. Well, Jim, you're a remarkable person. You know, we've known each other since the mid-80s. You're a remarkable person. You've had a remarkable impact on the business uh, and IT worlds. And you've had a remarkable impact on me and my career. It's been a two-way street. I hope you enjoyed my interview with Jim Weatherby. Jim is one of those people in a person's life who has a profound impact, both personally and professionally. My wife, Kathy, the managing editor of Entrepreneurship and Innovation Exchange, would say the very same thing. Jim's taught me a great number of things over the years, including how to communicate complex information technology topics to senior business executives so they get it. And watching Jim present in front of big audiences has told me a lot about how to get over the fear of standing up in front of a large and sophisticated crowd. I have known Jim for nearly 40 years now, And I look forward to many more years of friendship and collaboration. Everything Thought Leadership is a video and podcast series from Boudet TLP. It's for thought leaders and thought leadership professionals, the people who help experts get recognized as thought leaders. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd love it if you left a like and if you shared the episode with your colleagues. You can find out more about Boudet Thought Leadership Partners at BoudetTLP.com.